I've been on both sides of the table, but it's the same table. If we're honestly, you know, interested in changing conditions to the benefit of us all, all societies, all humans, all life, then we have to see it as a shared table. to say the nonprofit sector is broken. Less easy is saying how we're going to fix it. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors, where we speak with brilliant people to reimagine the future of social impact. In this fourth season, we'll be switching things up a bit and diving into what we all want, including and beyond donors. I'm Rachel stephenson Chef, IG's Managing Director, and we're a strategy consultancy specializing in social and environmental change. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, the host of the show, and today I'm thrilled to be sharing a conversation that we had with Roz Lee, all about feminist fundraising. It truly was an incredible conversation. I think by the end of it, we were just stunned and so moved by what she had to say. And yes, fundraising was the initial lens of the conversation, but trust me, it gets so much deeper than that. This is really a a life lessons, how to live a good, meaningful, expansive, abundant, joyful life with Rosalie featuring fundraising. (laughs) So that is the rebrand of this episode. Roz is based in New York, so we did this recording over Zoom. And because of that, we actually invited our Fix the Flow fellows to listen in on the conversation and ask their own questions directly to Roz. So you'll hear their voices on the recording as well. In addition to Emily Collins-Ellis, who's our brilliant IG CEO, as she co-facilitated the interview with me. I introduced Roz's brilliant bio in full on the call, so I won't get into that now. What I will say now, before we dive in, is a thank you and shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. Also want to send a thank you to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. Check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, and you can get 50% off an Alliance subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. All right, on to the conversation with Roz. I know you're going to like this one. Welcome, Roz, to What Donors Want. We are so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. So before we dive in, I want to take a moment to properly introduce you, of course, to our listeners, but also to the amazing fellows who dialed in today. So here we go. Rosley has dedicated her life to advancing racial, gender, economic, and LGBTQ justice through community organizing, advocacy, political education, and philanthropy. Roz served as the Vice President of Philanthropy at the Equality Fund, a global organization committed to funding feminist futures. And I also have to say I had the pleasure, we had the pleasure of working with you at the Equality Fund and your team there, which was such a delight. You worked at the Ms. Foundation for Women, where you led efforts to support gender and racial justice led by and for women and girls of color, including indigenous and transgender women and girls. As director of social justice initiatives at the Arcus Foundation, she created an innovative global and local philanthropic initiatives at the intersection of race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Roz is the first ever professor of practice at the Center for Feminist, Queer, and Transgender Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and Roz lives with her spouse and daughter in Harlem. Welcome, Roz, to the podcast. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, Rachel, Emily, fellows. Awesome. Emily, over to you. Thank you, Rachel. 
I mean, my only job here is to ask you questions, Ros, but I'm already feeling like, oh my gosh, how do I follow an introduction like that? What an amazing career you've had. And I'm so excited to hear from you about your perspectives and your experiences. I'm particularly interested in the fact that you've worked on both the kind of fundraising side and the funding side of the equation when it comes to mobilizing resources for good. You've had a variety of different leadership roles on both sides of that equation. So what has that been like for you? You know, have those experiences been wildly similar or wildly different? You know, what's that kind of experience of being on both sides of the table been like for you? So one, I'll say like listening to my own bio, it sounds like I'm like a hundred years old. I promise you that I'm <laughs> I'm not quite a hundred years old yet. <laughs> Although I do hope to get there and in good health. And I will say that's my professional bio. And, you know, just to be really honest about that. And those are the jobs that I've had, but I've been active in my life in many different arenas. In fact, you know, I was a performance poet early on in my life and I'm still a poet. I founded a writer's collective. I taught writing and poetry and prisons and youth facilities. I organized women in the neighborhood that I lived in when I graduated from college My very first organizing campaign was when I was still in high school. And then I got the bug, social change bug that I still have when I was in college organizing against apartheid in South Africa. And I say that all to you because all of those experiences rolled up into how I have been able to contribute to the philanthropic sector. So I know the grassroots I know community organizing. I know how it works. I understand how people who do truly hold the solutions need to be in relationship with philanthropy and how philanthropy should be in relationship to those leaders and those movements. And so the difference, I think, is that one, when we're talking about resources, we're talking about philanthropy. And you asked me, Emily, about wearing both hats. I've been on both sides of the table, but it's the same table. If we're honestly, you know, interested in changing conditions to the benefit of us all, all societies, all humans, all life, then we have to see it as a shared table. So my experiences on the movement side have influenced my career in philanthropy because I only fit in in places that were interested in supporting movements and resourcing movements and also respecting the leadership of those movements. I only fit in where there was a real desire and commitment to moving resources to those who had the solutions, who had the ideas, who had the strategies and innovations, and also had the values and the heart. I love what you said about it being the same table. I think that's definitely an ethos that we believe in and try and bring into the fellowship as well. But it is, it's easy to forget that. There's often a perception that it's not. And moving on what you said you know, about resourcing movements and really your impact among movements, something I'm curious to hear your opinion of is How you conceptualize the role of a fundraiser, whatever we want to call that fundraiser, resource mobilizer, et cetera, within the context of a wider movement. Because there's often 
at least in our experience, we find a lot of fundraisers feel very disempowered by the idea that there it's a passive intermediary role, that there's donors over there and there's movement over there and fundraisers somewhere in the middle. And I know we've had some conversations about this before with the Equality Fund team and just kind of reimagining the agency involved in that kind of role. But I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. How do you conceptualize the role of a fundraiser within a wider movement ecosystem? Sure. I've had the privilege of raising money for projects, organizations, movements that I believe in and consider myself to be a part of. And so that's really a privilege. Not everyone who does fundraising work, development, whatever you call it, is necessarily doing a job where they're driven by a passion. So I've had that experience and that's really, really helped me. I think it's important to acknowledge that you're raising money. To me, it's passive to not really step into the place to say, I'm raising money and this money is needed and this is what the money is needed for. And so it's important to lift that up. However, there is a wider spectrum of what kind of partnerships and what kind of relationships can we have, right? You can bring resources to organizations, leaders, and movements and financial resources. And that may not be the only thing that would benefit those movements. And so I do think of, yes, let's call raising money, raising money. That's feminist to me. That's stepping outside of norms where you have to kind of walk forward and be humble in your ask. When you believe in what you're doing and the cause, that doesn't require humility. That requires a certain amount of straightforwardness. And it's an invitation for those others who are at the table with you to be in partnership with you and to bring everything that they have from financial to other types of resources that widen that table and create space for others to be able to share in the power that that kind of community and communal response brings you. Speaking of being direct about the function of raising money within that, and that being a very feminist thing, that straightforwardness, which I love, I'm wondering what kind of language resonates most with you, because there's usually a euphemism. The department isn't called fundraising. It's called development or advancement or strategic partnerships or resource mobilization, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering what terms do you feel most resonant with within that? So I will say none of them resonate with me <laughs> in my, in the, <laughs> you know, in my, if I'm being entirely honest, you know, yeah. I, which is in general my resistance to labels. Mm-hmm. But I do think that if I had to choose, I probably would come closer to development. And it's really because I feel like that can be an umbrella for fundraising. It can be an umbrella for partnership strategic partnerships and other types of partnerships, that it can be an umbrella for donor networking. That's probably it. I would have said in the past that maybe resource mobilization was something that I felt was that kind of umbrella, but I no longer do because I feel like that it just makes me like itch to to hear resource mobilization. It's it's its own umbrella, but it's mysterious what is under that umbrella for me. That's just my personal take. Yeah, makes sense. It really 
really evokes quite a militaristic kind of sense for me as well, the kind of idea of mobilizing, less of a natural metaphor. Emily, I agree with you. And I, and I think language, it matters. And especially since we haven't been able to get rid of war as humans. And so mm-hmm. we know that these are the terms that are often used. I've been deeply influenced by others. And so while I was at the Equality Fund with Aaron, hey, Aaron, and we had an opportunity to do a program with the Nobel laureate, Grasa Michelle. And she reminded me that giving, philanthropy, fundraising starts at the community level, right? Like philanthropy exists in every kind of society. And yet we've made it seem like it only is something that comes from people who have incredible wealth, financial wealth. Mm -hmm. But communities have so many different forms of wealth that it's discounted. And when she said that, it really like it's something I knew, but she made me feel it. Mm -hmm. Speaking of working directly with donors and that and and also helping them through the emotional experience of that and kind of like having that connection with philanthropy, something that has come up a lot with fundraisers is the idea of donor centricity and how donor centric it is appropriate and strategic to be in general, but especially as a fundraiser where your role is, as we say, to raise money directly from people with a wide variety of resources and a diverse definition of wealth. We've actually even gotten feedback on the name of our podcast, which we're taking under advisement, which we're trying to think of what the future of this podcast is. But even the name, What Donors Want, centers the donor preference and the conversations that we want to have. And I think that feedback is absolutely fair enough. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, for fundraisers, how donor-centric should they be? Is there a line? What is appropriate? What is useful? Well, that's a a big and juicy question, and we could have multiple podcasts on that question. I'm going to stay in just one or two lanes on this one. And I think Mm -hmm. one is, you know, I'm a donor. I imagine everyone here gives to something or contributes to something in kind or with your hard-earned money. You support something. And so I think that part of it is really acknowledging that big or small, that we all are donors. And when you're doing fundraising, when you're doing development work, there's not a lot of space to acknowledge that you give to, right? That that there are things that are important to you that you give to. And so it automatically creates this dynamic where there are givers and there are, are people who are takers or receivers. And so that kind of disrupting that equation, I think is really important. And my perspective is a feminist one and an intersectional one. And so I think that it's all about disrupting norms. And I think about money that way. And that's why I think it's, you know, I talk about a shared table. I think you can't be too donor centric if that's going to be the case that there's a app and a flow or there's an opportunity to share power. I mean, fundraisers know or should know what they're asking support for. And donors should know that there's a lot that they don't know about what they're seeking to support. So there should be much more of a balance in that relationship. And then the last thing I'll say about about it is I'm not suggesting that donors are ignored, right? 
But I don't think that also don't think they should be deified and especially donors who have a lot of wealth, a lot to contribute because there was a cost to that. There was some kind of suffering in order for you to have that amount of wealth. And that doesn't mean that, and this is a critical analysis, but I'm not being necessarily negatively critical of people who have accumulated wealth. I will say that that means that there's a responsibility that comes with that also. And because of that, there should be a tremendous amount of respect for fundraisers and development people that you're engaging and you want to be in relationship with, that it is the responsibility of donors to step forward with a great deal more humility than they may have done in the past or may believe they need to. That too much is too who much is given comes a great deal of responsibility. This podcast is made possible by Siegel Family Foundation. We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.siegelfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at siegelfamilyfoundation.org. I think some of the power analysis, the critical analysis you're bringing in, it's so useful to hear you bring kind of a feminist analysis into lots of things already. You know, the values that you're bringing, but also the behaviors that you think should be centered, the way you relationship to language and, and how that sits with you and your feminist principles. And something that we talk about a lot is how, you know, you don't have to be fundraising for something that's explicitly feminist cause or a feminist issue in order to bring feminism into your fundraising. And so I'm interested to hear from you. You've already given a few examples through your responses to the other questions, but what kind of mindsets and practices do you define as feminist fundraising? How can fundraisers bring their feminism into their work, no matter their cause area? Sure. Well, Emily, I'll say that some of the things that I believe and think about are not common practices, but you know, I hold out hope that they're becoming more and more frequent. I mean, we know that there are some things that we talk about in the philanthropic sector around, you know, how we resource movements. So trying to be as unrestricted as possible. And so therefore trying to raise resources that don't have a lot of limitations, a lot of restrictions on them. Those kinds of things are starting to become more and more of a concept about how we think about giving back or contributing to. A big part of that is about contribution that, you know, when I think about donors and bringing in the humility, for example, is that there's a willingness for there to be a contribution made rather than full attribution, (laughs) you know, that here's what I did, right? Like, or here's what I want. The other thing, you know, when I was saying that, I feel like some of the ideas that I'm laying on the table in this conversation that that are common is for me, feminist means that you have the opportunity to do things differently. We don't always take ourselves up on that in this sector, right? Because patriarchy is incredibly ingrained. It's ingrained in all of us. And so the idea of stepping out, of doing things the same way or very similar ways is very hard. 
So even all of the metrics we create for ourselves, how much money we need to raise to meet this threshold, how we have to explain how the money is spent to donors. It's driven by a very, very patriarchal way of looking at how resources are distributed and redistributed, how wealth is redistributed. And if those are the tools that we are using, then we're not going to change any equation, right? So it keeps us in the place of doing things exactly how they have been done. When we're saying that we're trying to support movements who are absolutely saying, if we do things the way that we have been doing them, then nothing will change. It's so interesting. And it's so powerful that I love that definition of doing things differently is that feminism is an invitation to, to do that. And that'll, that takes a lot of effort and energy as well to even imagine what different might look like, but it's such an opportunity at the same time. I do think that the best fundraisers, the best resource mobilizers, the best development people are storytellers. They're able to engage with people, tell the story of the what and the why. I mean, I'm, you know, like, as I said, that telling the story, I'm thinking about Hamilton, the musical. And so kind of like in on along those lines, really like, you know, taking your shot, but coming from the place of I'm telling you as much truth as I possibly can. Yes, I would like you to give me some money. And this is actually the amount of money that it takes to make change. It's a long-term sustaining commitment. I was just listening to my public radio station before this podcast. I'm a member of that station. I'm a sustaining member. Well, I'm actually a member of a couple of public stations, but a sustaining member of that station because they're doing what I want. And I get to hear unique music, just things that I wouldn't normally hear. They don't have to do anything else for me but what they're doing. As long as I can, I will continue to be a sustaining member. And if my revenue changes, I will give more. This is how we should all behave. Right? That's, that's my two cents. Absolutely. I think there's so much dignity and power and respect in the way that you talk about philanthropy and donations and fundraising. And which is actually a perfect segue into my next question for you around the highly elusive abundance mindset in fundraising. And this is something, the words abundance and scarcity and not fighting for the same slice of the pie, all those kinds of theoretical principles are something that I think a lot of fundraisers and a lot of nonprofit leaders are very familiar with in theory. But I do have to say that after working with you at the Equality Fund and just observing the way that you lead the team and the values that you bring into that, I don't think I've ever seen anyone embody the abundance mindset as much as I've seen it in you in the way of believing that the resources will come, believing that the work is valuable, not creating an environment of anxiety and of scarcity and competition within the team, but one of collaboration and expansiveness and dignity in the work that you're doing. And I want to know how you do that. (laughs) How do you cultivate and protect that abundance mindset as a fundraiser? I think a couple of things about this. So one is that I believe that I live from a place of abundance, you know, and to me, again, I don't define everything in terms of 
finance or, you know, dollars and cents. I'm very rich in terms of the relationships that I have in my life, the family, the friends, the village that I'm a part of. I feel personally connected to everyone on the planet because that's how I think about movements and that's how I think about social change and my responsibility to this planet and to the people on it. And so that really helps me. I mean, so if I'm living from a place of abundance, then that's what I envision. I'll be real with all of you because you deserve that. So here I'm a black queer feminist. Everything about my life would have, if I had imagined it as a child, it would be truly a wild fantasy because there were no models (laughs) for it. And yet here I am having a good life, living my life openly and fully. And that seems to me not extraordinary anymore. And hopefully the people who follow me will have these kinds of guideposts and really be operating from that place of there's so much through which you can fill your cup. And I'll even get even more personal. I've, you know, recently, you know, at the end of the spring, my time at the Equality Fund was up in terms of the contractual work I was doing there, leading the team and having being a part of a great team and helping to build a feminist strategy and build a team at the Equality Fund. I'm a parent of a teen who is starting to think about college. And so I'm, you know, just trying very hard not to work full time right now so I can enjoy what is for me the last summer with my kid before college. And so it's meant having some sort of faith in, I have some resources, I have saved a little bit, I've had, you know, done enough that I can operate from this place that everything will be fine if I take this time to enjoy my kid and enjoy this special time that we have together before she goes out into the world on her own. And I'm saying that from a very personal place because then it translates to, of course, I believe that there's a lot out there, right? Of course, I believe that there's more than enough for everyone. And therefore, I approach fundraising from that place of there's more, there's more to give. I'm still committed, even in taking this pause from full-time work, I have still give all the same donations that I've been giving. I'm still that sustaining donor, right? I'm still moving forward through my life as it will be okay. And I think in fundraising, the thing is that we think in such small windows that if we don't get it in this quarter, or if we don't get it in this fiscal year, then it's done. Whereas really, when you're building toward this, this is a journey. What I'm describing is my abundance mindset. I built over time, came together over time. So that has to be true with these relationships that will create the sustainability that we need. And they don't always happen in that window that we've determined, because again, we're using very patriarchal models is that window, because that window, you all know, is always too small. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's such a beautiful way to answer the question. And what I'm hearing is that it starts within yourself and it's a very personal thing. And then by extension, it appears in your professional life and in your fundraising practice. If you don't believe it, nobody else will. Yeah. Speaking of the fact that you 
cultivated that mindset over many years and you've built it up into this place where it's it's how you live your life in all of the different realms, personal and professional. I'm wondering what advice you would give to someone who's a little bit earlier on in their career and who's working in a fundraising team where they want to adopt that mindset. They don't want to be anxious every quarter, as you say, these small time windows that we've arbitrarily decided every goal should fit into. And perhaps that they have a boss, a leader of the fundraising team who doesn't have that mindset, who feels squashed between their CFO and the board and the targets that they didn't set and they're anxious and that anxiety can pass on to the teams, which is a very, very common thing in fundraising that we Mm -hmm. see and, you know, contributes to the burnout and the turnover and everything. So I'm wondering what advice you would give to someone who wants to step into that abundance and into that slowness and that grace that you speak of, but who doesn't have the leadership support around them to do that. They need to influence. What would you say to them? Absolutely. Well, one is definitely being in spaces like this. It's very, very important to not be on your own mm-hmm. and really create a circle of people. I mean, part of it, you know, you heard me mention a village. I have mentors. You know, I have people who I can have real talk with and be open to listening to them, even if they have harder things to say to me. But the bottom line is, I'm in relationship with people, and that extends beyond people who do the kind of work that I do, right? So, because it can get kind of, you know, monotonous if you're only talking to other fundraisers because you kind of just vent and complain rather than expand the dialogue. The other thing is around this kind of operating from a place of abundance, which I highly recommend because it's given me a very, very satisfying and happy life, is to start sooner. You've heard my resume, so you know I've done a lot of things, but I actually, in terms of like climbing a ladder or doing anything like that, stopped doing that at a much earlier age. I was fortunate to fall into these positions, but you don't see CEO on my resume because I was never interested in being a CEO, even though I've been recruited to be one. And so there were things that I chose Right. That were significant to me. And so that's important, too, that it may be a goal for some of you to be a development director or a CEO. There's nothing wrong with that, but you should have a sense of like, what is what do I want for my whole life? Because there is only one life. You don't get to later on say, okay, I'm going to go back and do these other things that were really important to me. So you're definitely hearing that from me. I also operate from a place without fear. And I say that because you can use words like courage and bravery, but the thing I feel most proud of is not living in a fearful way. That's made me capable of, and sometimes, you know, more often than not in a professional setting, I try to be diplomatic about it, but I'm willing to challenge ideas, put ideas forward. And I'm also willing to support ideas that maybe are not always the most popular ideas, just because I'm, you know, infinitely curious. And I believe that if you are going to do things differently, you have to try some things. And that means also how you lead. My greatest success comes in other people that are on my team, seeing themselves as leaders, wanting to grow, feeling heard and valued and respected. And so it's like as corny as it is, it's really believing in yourself and the values that you bring. My number one value is kindness. And early in my career, somebody gave me the advice that, you know, that was too soft and that was bad advice. So I just kept moving forward. I'm like, you know, that's your opinion, not mine. (laughs) And it has served me really well 
throughout my professional life because I haven't ever had to make a choice to be unkind. I just want to call something brilliant out in what you're saying, which really resonates with me and I think will resonate with a lot of listeners, which is the opportunity to be in alignment and be with integrity when doing fundraising as a practice because I think so many of us get into this type of work because we want to do good in the world we want to feel a sense of purpose and be aligned with our values and then there are so many structures and hierarchies and processes and capitalist structures and finance that get placed on that that actually lead to us to feel a real big sense of tension between who we are as people our why for doing what we do and what it actually takes to be successful in fundraising or doing the work of fundraising and there's so much of what you just said which is not just about this kind of abundance mindset and kind of influencing for that but actually truly answering like why are you doing what you're doing what do you want to contribute to the world, what do you want your life to be like? And then thinking just practically how that can actually be demonstrated logistically in your like employment and the way that you kind of show up and collaborate with colleagues and think about where you want to work and how you want to pay your bills, that kind of question. And I think being able to bring those kind of big philosophical points down to the more personal and logistic is, is actually really, really powerful and something that it's not always accessible for us as fundraisers, especially as we get more senior or we're kind of like, you know, we're climbing the ladder, as you put it. And maybe we want that, but also there's a lot of kind of pressure to be in silos and to kind of climb and to get the next target and get the next promotion. And I think there's just so much choice and freedom in what you just described that might lead us to exactly the same place. But when we get there, we'll feel like we've done it in alignment with our values rather than just kind of being caught up in forces that are beyond our control. Absolutely. It's sometimes giving yourself the permission to say no to something. And we're all on our own journey, but it is a journey. It never stops being a journey. Like one of my favorite playwrights, August Wilson, in his play, The Gem of the Ocean, one of the characters said, I'm paraphrasing, but on the path to, you know, seeking freedom, trying to get to freedom. And, you know, when I got to the place, I realized that it wasn't a destination but a journey. And I think those are the types of things that that guide me. And just, you know, knowing that having an activist background, there's always been something in my life that was going to happen beyond my life that might not completely be achieved in my lifetime, but that I wanted to contribute to. Wow. Roz, thank you so much. I think we need another podcast called Life Lessons with Roz <laughs> This is so far, this is so deeper and so much further beyond fundraising. But of course it ties back to it because it becomes a manifestation of everything we're talking about. But I just can't thank you enough for sharing all of that and for always being so generous with your story and showing up as a personal and a professional human in, in the same breath. I think that's so powerful. I think that's so feminist. So my goodness, we could talk forever. I do want to make sure that we give fellows a chance to ask you their questions. So I think let's take about 10 minutes for this and then we can transition into wrapping this up because we want to respect Roz's time. But over to you fellows. What questions do you have? Hi everyone. Um, so I'm Anna. I'm a, uh, I work with UK Youth, and it took me a second to formulate anything because I think I'm just very stunned. Like this mm-hmm. is absolutely amazing to hear. I guess one of my questions would be around perhaps the boring practicalities of navigating the theory and the beauty of it all and fundraising in a very like 
day to day, especially, I guess, as a junior staffer. I think, yeah, Rachel asked this a bit similarly, but how do you keep that spirit day to day in what you do? Um, Thanks for your question, Anna. And I'm going to do something unusual. I do have someone who I worked with who was on a team with me who I'd love for you, you, Aaron, to give us some insight around the day to day since we we had that experience together. Over to you, Aaron. So my name is Aaron. I work at the Equality Fund. Yes, I worked with Roz in the past. Me having my team, honestly, has and surrounding myself with people, I think that it is hard. We're in, we're in very hard work and we're not always 100%, but having people on your team and surrounding you, not necessarily, it doesn't have to necessarily be on your team, but like Roz was mentioning, mentors and other people in the field, but who can kind of help carry you when you're at less than 100% or not take over, but you know, when you can say I'm only 80 and they can say, well, I've got your other 20 right now. And surrounding yourself with that kind of environment of collective care, which has to be prioritized and has to be done intentionally, I would say for me on my on my team has been very important. Thank you, Erin, for taking this leap. And what I'll add is, you know, Erin and I, we've got to be on a team together and I, and hopefully you all are on some kind of team, right? Um, and you're, you know, not out there by yourselves, but What I'll say is around the positivity, Anna, is that we all have days where it's like it just nothing went the right way. We're drained. We feel stressed. We feel like we're not, you know, we're undervalued, not appreciated. Or we had a goal that we didn't meet. And we talked earlier about values. And so I in a team context, it really helped at the Equality Fund and other places where we had some shared values and we believe in one of in one area like we were also while we may not have had a clear definition at every time we knew we were trying to pursue something that was feminist and so that was buoyed us right that we had that in common that we were feminists we identified as feminists and we really wanted to lead with our values we also had hobbies and interests that we shared with each other so Aaron and I don't work today today, but we learned a lot about each other. So we still, even though we're, we're not at the same organization, share our music concerts, where we're going to, what we're listening to. We have a lot of those things where we took time to celebrate so that we had that to lean on in the times when it felt really harder and, or tougher. And particularly when, you know, we were feeling pressure as a team. So those are the kinds of things I start every day. Like I do something, read poetry or do something that like feels really grounding. And then I do that also toward the end of my day. So creating those kind of habits for yourself that real, it's not only centering work where you can step away from work and then return to it. Cause that's what I always say to myself, even when it's emails, like if emails come in at like five o'clock at night, they're not going to be answered by me. You know, I'm talking about important ones, like, you know, not small ones, but where you really have to be thoughtful. I got career training years and years ago where it was, don't answer that. Like, just wait till tomorrow when you're like fresh and you've, you're not so close to it. So just things like that have been really, really helpful to me. And I try to instill that in my team that even though we're doing really important work, We're not neurosurgeons. We're not in the emergency room and that life happens. So we have to be more flexible about time. 
Absolutely. And thank you for that question, Anna. And, and Aaron, I love, I think I caught a Brene Brown reference in the 80-20 time mm-hmm. thing. And Brene talks a lot about that. Like if I've got 80, can you do the 20? I just love that. And that flexibility, oh my gosh, I'm still working on that myself. There's such a tendency, the urgency culture, but that doesn't serve the life that we all want to live. So thank you for that answer. Let's take one more question. I think Katie, you had a question, right? I'm Katie Hillett from the Domestic Abuse Charity Refuge. And my question is, Roz, I loved your comments about how you move from that contribution being the the way that you want to do it rather than attribution for philanthropy. So how do you take a philanthropist on that journey when they're very much approaching it from a viewpoint of a defined legacy for their family giving? That's not always an easy one, depending also if there's like multiple family members and different you know, competing interests. But I do think it is about a journey. Like the greatest successes that I've had is really creating a dialogue where people have to interrogate together what legacy means in legacy, even if that legacy is layered so that you might have more than one generation involved. So how do we get to this place where we all feel like this is something that belongs to us and we're all also recognizing that we may have different perspectives based on generations or something else like, you know, it could be gender or race or ethnicity. But those are the kinds of things that you really want to be able to have a conversation with. And then collectively, and not just one, it's probably a dialogue. And it's probably also, it's often benefited me to have other people who've been on that journey talking with the family, maybe not necessarily in the same issue areas, or but just like, this is how we got to where we were. And then having that final kind of, based on what we've learned, based on what we desire, where do we want to settle in? And that to me is like, there's no way around that because otherwise there'll always be friction between who had the loudest voice or you know who had the longest tenure until you make it a collective process. And lastly, that it should be, fluid, because my experience with families is that they don't always have a lot of time in a short window. So how do you stretch it out so that they can have these dialogues, ideally in a relaxed atmosphere? Thank you. That's so helpful. And I think it's really useful to understand as well where we see those like beacons of like feminist philanthropy who are doing it in ways that really work for organizations and really work for societies and how we can share that voice more widely and that it's not just coming from the organizations. Absolutely. And, you know, Kay, last thing to that, and when I was saying ideally in a relaxed atmosphere, I'm really saying that it shouldn't be Zoom (laughs) and it shouldn't be like a stuffy conference room because that will automatically limit how people are thinking and engaging. It'll make them feel like they are in a box and you don't want that. Absolutely. I think that value of again, this abundance, this spaciousness and slowness is, it's coming through in all of your answers. And I completely agree. It's like curating the right environment to go into the depth that you want to is very important. Oh my goodness, Roz, 
we, I mean, there's so many questions. I know I can see them coming through on the chat, but I, I want to be mindful of your time. So we will begin to wrap it up. But before we go, we do this with all of our guests just to always bring all of these big theoretical conversations to conclude them on a very human note. It's very important to us to always do that. So we have some very, very serious questions for you that have nothing to do with fundraising or philanthropy. Emily and I will tag team them. Does that sound all right? Sure. One quick thing. So Katie, your question, there are some resources. Actually, I also think that Rachel and Emily probably have access to Shake the Table, other types Mm -hmm. of reports about feminist philanthropy that might be a a good resource for you. Thank you so much. But I'm ready for the very serious questions. Awesome. And yes, good point. Shake the Table. And of course, we can post some of those things on our community platform for the fellowship, but it's such a good question. Okay, Roz. So you are a New Yorker. What is your favorite thing to do in New York? I'm a big baseball fan and it's summertime. So I love going to baseball games. I'm a New York Mets fan, die hard since I was five years old. So <laughs> my favorite thing is to sit in the stands at the game, you know, and say bad things to the referees if things are not going, to the umpires if things are not going my way. Love it. <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song? I have two, actually. So, I mean, first I will say that I'm terrible, terrible singer. You know, my daughter says I'm a little (laughs) tone deaf, but I know how to harmonize from my many years in choir. So Mm. I always try to do it with the group. Two, one is Don't Stop Believing by Journey, which is like, (laughs) everybody knows the words to that song and it's, Uh you know, feels good. And then the other one is girls just want to have fun. See, those You can always get a group up singing with you for those songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. So I remember, or at least I hope I remember, in New York, you mentioned that you were also a Gilmore Girls fan. It's interesting, Rachel. I did mention because my daughter and my spouse they're both Gilmore Girls fans. And so, you know, it's it kind mm-hmm. of, and I am, but, but, but the thing is like the only knock I have on the show is the very fast talking, which is not, I'm not a super fan of that, but I know the whole show and I've seen the whole show. Oh my gosh. Well, fair enough. And so I do have to ask you the very important question of, are you on team Dean, Jess or Logan? Oh, Jess all the way. You know, yeah, I am, am the Jess. Everyone is Team Jess, but Emily yeah. and I are both Logan. It's a it's a whole debate. I'm sorry, we have to cancel the podcast now. Okay, cancel now. All right. Well, you know, it, I I just you know I just Milo. I mean, I just I don't know. It's, I know, I know, I'm Milo. More, I'm, yeah. I'm a Milo person, but we clicked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm also I'm watching This Is Us at the moment, which Milo is. Obviously, yes. a very big part of, and oh my gosh, yeah, that's a yeah. fair enough answer. I I will take Team Milo. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Team Milo. Well, Team Milo. Compromise. Emily, am I back in now? Okay. <laughs> All right, I can accept that. I can accept that. Depending on your answer to the next question, which okay, is, okay. what public feminist icon has influenced you the most? Mm, public feminist. So I would say I live in Harlem. We just, you know, celebrated Juneteenth in the U.S., which is a holiday commemorating. It's called also known as Freedom Day. But Harriet Tubman is like my number one feminist icon. The fact that not only did she travel on the underground real world, which for many of us would just be like extraordinary to do that once. She did that 11 times, right? Like, I mean, like that to me 
is just she'll always be my number one. I mean, talk about just commitment, bravery, just badassery. Absolutely. You mentioned before that you got a piece of bad advice, which I agree is terrible advice, that being kind is too soft or that it wouldn't serve you well. But I'm wondering what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? I'll admit that I've gotten many good pieces of advice, but in this moment, I'll share a very quick story, which is a few years back, you know, maybe five or six years ago, I was talking with my family, my daughter and my partner, and we were talking about laughter and they said, you don't laugh enough. And I was like, I was talking about it. Like I was stunned. I was taking it back because I didn't think that that was like, they're like, yeah, you know, you know, you could laugh more. You can laugh. I took their advice. I didn't know that that was the case. But then when I heard it and resonated, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's sometimes that I express more worry or concern or like have, you know, and I'm not like showing what I feel inside, which is more joy than worry or concern. So that in this moment was some of the best advice I ever received, which was to laugh more. Oh, yes. I love that. Laughter is such a powerful force. We actually have someone on our team. She's not here at the moment, but she wrote her whole dissertation on laughter. We talk a lot about it with her and just the power of it. So, so fascinating. Wow. Roz. Okay. It is time for us to unfortunately pause this conversation, but but the last, last thing I want to ask you is... If there's one thing that you want someone to take away from this conversation, what would that be? Well, to make sure that you are surrounding yourselves with people who not only care about you, but believe in you, Mm -hmm. believe in you, support you, will stand up for you and who you will also stand up for. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Roz. Thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you do. And I know I can see in the comments, I can just feel it that this was a really special conversation to have and to listen in on. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, everyone. It was a pleasure to talk with you. So that is all we've got for today. I think you will agree when I say that that conversation was really one of my favorites that we've had on the podcast. I'm just so inspired by Roz's mindset in all elements of her life and the way that she brings that as a natural extension to her work. And and as I said, I have worked with her directly. I've seen it in practice and she really, really does practice what she preaches. And it's the kind of energy and it's the kind of leadership that we all need to be around more. So huge, huge, huge thank you to Roz for her wisdom, for her example, her generosity and her story. And wow, I just, I learned so much from that. And I know the fellows were really excited too. The chat was just bursting with lots of comments and emojis. So more episodes are coming soon. We've got some really, really interesting ones in the pipeline being recorded. And in the meantime, you know where to find us. We're at Twitter, IG underscore advisors. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. Please do follow us on LinkedIn. We're quite active there as well for lots of announcements. And you can always shoot me an email. I'm Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at ig-advisors.com. And finally, of course, another thank you to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this possible. And to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, for 50% off an Alliance subscription. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. 
This podcast was produced by myself, Rachel Stephenson Chef, Esther Cavour, and the team at Scrubcast. Shout out to Dave and Tim. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much.